Thank you so much, Bob. We've got to get this thing off the screen here. And I have trouble with a microwave oven. You can imagine what I... Anybody know anything about computers? How we can erase this thing? Bless you, my son. You've probably heard this many times, but you have never heard it more deeply from the heart than you are now. How, how grateful I am to be here. Some 30 years ago, this organization honored me with the Nevins Freeman Award. And that award still sits very conspicuously in my study. Uh, Ralph Newman was a very close friend of mine. Pete Long was too. We can go down the line of the great, of the old members who really established this round table, and I knew them all. Uh, and it's just a pleasure to be back with you tonight. I'm thoroughly appreciative of the invitation to come. Uh, it's kind of been very nice for Betty and me. Uh, the good-looking blonde here is my <laughs> wife of one year. And uh, we spent our honeymoon in Chicago in November of last year. We got an overnight sleeper and I got on the train in Virginia and got off the train and uh, it's just the way to travel nowadays. Take it from someone who flies 50,000 miles a year, the train is the way to go if you can do it. And so we are very appreciative of the invitation and I thank you once again for the great award. Uh, if Ralph Newman's story is of le legion, I can tell you one you never heard. Once when I spoke to this group, I asked, Ralph invited me to spend the night with him in his penthouse suite over on the lake. And he had to go out to a late night meeting. I didn't ask. Uh, so he left me over there about nine o'clock at night. And he said, uh, if you get bored, uh, just look in that file cabinet which he had over in the corner of the, of the bedroom. Many of you may not know that for several years, Ralph Newman was uh, uh, on the board of editors of the Playboy magazine. <laughs> And his file cabinet was full of uh, photographic folios that wannabes sent in to him. I mean, it was blatant pornography, file after file after file. I think I went through one file. And I don't normally lie. Bob mentioned that uh, for many years I was a football official. Some of you cussed me like crazy seeing me on television and never knew who was wearing that hat. And people think that the Civil War and football officiation had nothing in common. They do. They do. And I was uh, a victim or the beneficiary of it. Uh, back in the old days, uh, the visiting team brought their officials so that if the Big Ten school played, say, the University of Georgia, then the Big Ten guys come down to work this SEC game. Well, Indiana came down to play North Carolina State in Raleigh, and it was a mix-up or something, so an ACC crew, my crew, was assigned to work the game. The, um, you know, um, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, you know what they do with coaches who can't win, who are failures? They put them up in the t in TV box to be commentators. <laughs> Think about it, Lou Holtz. Bob Davey, Mike Godley, and worst of all, Lee Corso. Corso was the coach at Indiana, and he came down, and Indiana was heavily favored to beat NC State, but things just kind of kept going wrong that night. Early in the first quarter, there was a long Indiana 
uh, pass, a long NC, uh, long NC State pass. But the safety man down there intercepted it, but he was flagged for passing the front. So the defensive back ran it back for a touchdown. Instead, uh, at that time, uh, you got the ball back, it was a spot foul. So he not only lost the touchdown, but Indiana lost about 60 yards on the play, and NC State moved in to win. Uh, Indiana would get a drive going, a penalty would stop them, etc. And finally, in the third quarter, Corso just went bananas. And then we have a, a penalty on him, and suddenly I looked over, and he's standing on the sidelines waving a white towel, saying, I surrender, I surrender, when I flagged him for some unsportsmanlike conduct. <laughs> After the game, during the uh, press conference, where, you know, these sports journalists ask such intelligent questions, and one of the reporters said, Coach, have you got anything to say about the officiating tonight? And Corso said, you bet your ass I do. <laughs> and he stopped for a moment and said, I'll tell you this. If General Lee had had those seven zebras, the South would have won that damn war. <laughs> you see, that is a connection. <laughs> Thirty years of uninterrupted debate over the issue of slavery came to a boil in December 1860 when South Carolina left the Union. James Pettigrew was a federal judge in Charleston, and at the secession of his native state, the venerable jurist growled, it won't work, South Carolina's too small to be a nation and too large to be an insane asylum. <laughs> Yet 10 other states joined South Carolina in a freedom movement they called the Confederate States of America. Two nations within a nation faced each other. One president was pledged to preserve the Union at all costs. The other chief executive was leading a pilgrimage to take a third of the states out of the Union. And between them was no space, no room for adjustment, no room for compromise. And even if there had been, immense emotions were swirling about the country. It was emotion out of control, without formality, without restraint. And once the guns at Fort Sumter began firing, what they unleashed was a civil war of incredible savagery and enormous destruction. The civil war affected everyone because, as you need to remember, it was an all-American struggle. It was us against us. The young boys lost their youth and their innocence, and overnight they became adult, seasoned soldiers. Hundreds of thousands of them lost their manhood because they lost their lives. Suffering, sacrifice, humanism was everywhere. Now, how long, no matter how long we study the Civil War, what we do not know, it seems, will be more than we know. There is more Civil War history unknown than perhaps there is that we know. So many little but captivating facts remain in darkness waiting to be discovered. Several years ago, National Public Radio asked me to do a weekly program of four-minute vignettes on hidden but human aspects of the war. No one thought the venture would be long-lasting, yet seven years and 350 broadcasts later, the popularity of the recordings had far exceeded everyone's expectations, especially my own. Then two years ago, the National Geographic Society announced that it would do one book for the sesquicentennial. And fortunately, the CEO of National 
Geographic Society, as I learned, was one of my strongest fans <laughs> during these weekly broadcasts. And it was he who suggested that National Geographic do a book based on those little four-minute vignettes. The book has 132 mini-essays in it. Some of them are brand new, others are just expansions of or revisions of the vignettes I did on radio. But most of all, it's filled with almost 400 illustrations, as only the National Geographic Society can do. Uh, this is not a heavy meal with one entree. This is a huge buffet with 130 hors d'oeuvres here. It's the kind of book you can pick it up, read it to two or three essays, put down, come back to it later, and you haven't broken any continuity because there is no continuity in it, save for the six chapters into which these 130 vignettes are inserting. Now, the personal element in war is, I think, the most overlooked of all, and I said this last night in Milwaukee. Somehow, someway, the field of history has lost its human aspect. We forget exactly what was taking place. You look at the, a military map, and I, I assure you, I'm not a military historian. I don't get sexually aroused at men shooting and killing each other. Uh, military historians have that niche. I studied under Bell Wiley. I'm a social historian. I'm interested in people and emotions and feelings. And hence, uh, this is why I concentrate on the non-military aspects of it. I try to stress the personal. For 50 years or 44 years, I taught in Virginia Tech. I could make the students laugh. But there were times when I wanted to make them cry, and I did. And that's when you feel a sense of accomplishment as a historian, because they now are imbued with the human aspect. They can see the humanism to it. So when you look at a military map, you see red lines and you see blue lines. I don't. I see tens of thousands of frightened young boys uh, doing their best to be brave, to fight, and if necessary, to die for their country. And it is them and what all they did that intrigues me. Now, The Untold Civil War, is in this book, is the first major attempt to accomplish that task of looking at the little-known but fascinating things. Neil Kagan, who was a picture editor, is incredible for finding pictures. He found this one in the Library of Congress. It was so faded that you, cannot, you could not even make the, uh, discern the facial features. But he gave it to the technicians at National Geographic Society, and it looks like it was taken yesterday. Uh, nothing was known of this photograph, so it was actually uh, an ideal one to, talk, to use as a dust jacket for the unknown or untold Civil War. However, two days after the book came out, I received an email from a busy shop in Colorado, and she said, how in the world did you find a photograph of my great-grandfather? And she had a very weak copy of it, her great-grandfather is a tall guy in the second row. His name is Eli Rochelle. He was a member of the 53rd Tennessee Volunteer Infantry CSA. And this is obviously a late war picture because a couple of them are wearing Union uniform coats, which they've taken from captains or dead Union soldiers. So tonight I want to share a sampling with you. Now don't get uneasy. I know it's Friday night. I know you have time limits on speakers. I'm not going to narrate all 130 essays, and that quiz, as I discovered, has taken the air out of several balloons and to you anyway. Uh, so we will not have to stop somewhere along the line and 
take, take a break for coffee and donuts. I'm going to give you a sampling, maybe a half dozen of these little vignettes just to show you how human the war one was. Chapter one is appropriately entitled The Human Side of the War, and I try to set the standards with it. It's not a collection of soldiers' quotation. It's found in earlier works by Bill Wiley and myself. Rather, 30 essays focused on small but human incidents that lie beneath the tidal wave of the war itself. There's a story of two brothers from Maryland who fought on opposite sides. They had become estranged in 1858 over the slavery issue. And yet, as they both lay dying on the battlefield in 1865, by chance they came upon each other and held hands just before death came. While Lincoln grew a beard, the great locomotive chase, personal sidelights on Fort Sumter, Gettysburg, and Cold Harbor, a mass execution at one time of 22 deserters, and the occasion when the sternly pious Stonewall Jackson became hopelessly intoxicated. These are the kinds of things you will find there. Now, one cannot look at human behavior in that war, or indeed in American history, without encountering the humor of Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln always comes across with that stern uh, Socrates-like wisdom, but underneath it all, Lincoln suffered from what today would be called chronic depression. And wit and humor were his only escapes. It was the humor was there because it was a necessary crutch, even in the face of adversity. Uh, late in 1863, in refusing a man who wanted a pass to Richmond, Lincoln stated, I would gladly give you the pass if it would do any good. But in the last two years, I have given passes to 200,000 soldiers, and not one of them has managed to get to Richmond yet. So Lincoln can find humor, even in his own problems. But let me show you about the human aspects of the Civil War, and there is no better way to start. Thank you, Jesus. There's no better way to start than with Abraham Lincoln. Watch closely. This is Lincoln in 1861 when war began. Four years later, there he is. That is what the Civil War was all about. You see in that, that terrible transformation of this individual, the horror, the tragedy, the weight, the responsibilities, the problems of the war as he faced it. In chapter two, uh, the life of the soldiers is, is the theme. The subjects range from family contributions to families that lost a lot of numbers, to families who contributed many men. The things that Civil War soldiers liked to do in army camps and didn't like to do, the uniforms, food, marches, whiskey, picket duty, recreation, love life, homesickness, all of these are covered with vignettes. No story of army life in the 1860s would be complete without mentioning pets, mascots, were there in abundance. Many regiments on both sides had mascots. They ran their own gauntlet of the animal kingdom. When uh, many regiments had dogs, cats, but they also other units had a possum, a raccoon, chickens, pigs. Uh, two of regiments had bears. One regiment had a camel for a short period of time. <laughs> Union General George Custer was never without at least one dog. He normally slept with two or three. But Custer always had dogs around him. Uh, now we come to one of the questions in the quiz. The 8th of Wisconsin Infantry, 
Well, they had the most famous mascot of all. It was an eaglet when Chippewa Indians donated it to the regiment as they left for war. Soldiers named the bird Old Abe. In some ways, the eagle was a pitiful sight. A strong cord bound him to a perch on a wooden pole. His wings were continually clipped to keep him from flying away. Nevertheless, the eagle's fame spread through the Union armies in the Western theater. He was a curiosity as well as a motivation. The 8th Wisconsin became known as the Eagle Regiment, and Old Abe was in at least three dozen engagements. He, was all, he always found bottle stimulating, and he reacted by flapping his wings and screeching loudly. <clears throat> the bird never received a bottle wound, and this is amazing because he was a prime target for Confederate sharpshooters who were always trying to kill him to break the spirit of the 8th Wisconsin. Well, it was in the regiment took the eagle home. Old Abe lived in a cage in the Capitol building in Madison, but he spent barely half his time there. He became a coveted guest of honor at veterans reunions and other patriotic meetings. Thousands of people cheered at the very sight of the eagle. And of course, legends about Old Abe grew in number with the passing years. In campaigns, it was said, the eagle made aerial reconnaissance and then, and how was never explained, he passed the information along to the commanding officer. <laughs> the best tale was of the eagle making dive bombing attacks on southern commanders. Now, none of these accounts were true, but they made for lively telling at veterans reunions uh, when the liquor was pouring copiously. In March 1881, the eagle died in the homes of its keeper. The animal was stuffed and placed inside a glass case in the Wisconsin capital. Yet 13 years later, Old Abe was destroyed when fire gutted the Capitol building in Madison. However, two existing memorials exist to this bird. One is the Wisconsin State Monument, which dominates the Dixburg battlefield. It is a granite column, 57 and a half feet tall, and on the top of it is a six-foot a bronze statue of old age. The other memorial, which will surprise many of you, originated in World War II and is still in use. It is one of the most revered shoulder patches in all of American military existence. The patch belongs to the 101st Airborne Division, which calls itself the Screaming Eagles. Old Abe would like that. Chapter 3 is a picnic-laden table topics ranging from naval torpedoes developed by Matthew Fontaine Morley, to the value of topography, weather as a factor in war. You ever think about weather? You never really have a cause to. The origin of the rebel yell, the emancipation, and Richmond as a national capital. Individuals showcased here include Winfield Scott, Robert E. Lee, the Confederacy's miracle man, Josiah Gorgas, and a West Point professor named Dennis uh, Hart Mahan, who taught military theory to dozens of future Civil War generals. Now every historian of the Civil War period has to confront folklore. Wherever you go, there's always a story somebody wants to tell you, and it generally is family myth, more than fact. And this, is, this, this folklore is especially the case when the subject turns to Civil War spies and espionage during the conflict. Espionage as a sophisticated science was in its infancy at the time of the Civil War. Indeed, many of these spies liked to announce that they were spies, 
seeking information on what the other side was doing so they could report it back. Well, they got a lot of information, but most of it was misinformation. So what I'm going to say is basically that for every James Bond you find in the Civil War, you're going to meet two Maxwell Smarts. <laughs> uh, it's just not a, a great time for espionage. However, among the most successful spies, as both Lincoln and Grant acknowledged, was Elizabeth Van Loo, the daughter of a prosperous Richmond merchant. Lizzie was well-educated and highly intelligent. She inherited the mercantile business at her father's death. By the time of the Civil War, Van Loo was in her mid-forties, a small, dowdy spinster with darting blue eyes and seemingly nervous disposition. She was a staunch unionist who refused to cooperate in any way, shape, or form with the Southern Confederacy. In public, she adopted a dress and a manner to give the impression that she was totally insane, and she succeeded completely. Throughout the war, Richmond citizens learned to keep that distance from what they call crazy bet, who could throw a fit, uh, predictably or unpredictably. Yet sympathetic local officials gave her permission to go down the hill from the Van Loo home and to visit captured Union soldiers in Libby Prison, down at the bottom of the hill. And there she went almost daily, taking in food and bringing out military information that prisoners had overheard. Meanwhile, Lizzie had converted the van, large Van Loo mansion into a veritable fortress. The door was triple locked. Secret passageways, as you see here, uh, existed in many of the rooms. Up in the attic, there were adequate quarters to house several uh, Union soldiers who could escape from one of the Richmond prisons and get there. And her home became a first step in the escape of Union soldiers from Virginia compounds trying to get north. When Union forces occupied Richmond in April 1865, General U.S. Grant publicly commended Levan Lou for sending what he called the most valuable information received from Richmond during the war. Only then did incensed townspeople learn that a Yankee spy had dwelled in that mist for the four years of warfare. In 1869, President Grant added insult to injury by appointing Van Lou postmaster of Richmond. She held the assignment throughout the eight-year Grant administration. When Grant went out of office, Van Loo moved to Washington, whereupon Richmond officials confiscated her home and turned it into an insane asylum. <laughs> the exiled Miss Van Loo eventually returned to Richmond, and she spent the remainder of her life with a niece and 40 cats. Uh, we have an unusual picture here. Uh, late in her life, she was allowed to return to the mansion in which she grew up, which was the old Van Loo mansion on Church Hill. And in this photograph, you see her sitting in the lower left-hand corner. An old, old, unloved woman uh, sitting in her once was one side, perhaps remembering all that she had done and all that she had lost. Few people attended her funeral in 1900. An elaborate gravestone soon adorned the burial site. Some thought the marker a testimonial from forgiving the Richmonders. They were wrong. The gravestone was a gift from appreciative families of Massachusetts soldiers. Now Arlington National Cemetery is the nation's largest shrine to fallen heroes, and yet its graffiti overshadows its disreputable beginnings. George Washington Custis, the stepson and namesake of our first president, inherited the property in 1802. 
Custis set out to build a combination mansion and shrine to the father that he adored. He called the place Arlington after the Custis family's first home on Virginia's eastern shore. Custis and his wife had one child, a daughter, Murray. In 1831, she married Robert E. Lee. Arlington became the only real home that Army Officer Robert E. Lee would have for 30 years. Six of his seven children were born at Arlington Estate. And it was there in April 1861 that Lee made the decision to offer his sword to his native state. Federal officials then took possession of the Arlington Estate. The Quartermaster General of the Union Armies was a man named Montgomery Meggs. He was a brilliant engineer but uncontrollably vindictive. He considered all Confederates, including his own brother, to be nothing less than traitors. He and Lee had been friends for three years. But to punish that long-time friend, Meggs determined to turn Arlington into a vast city. Unauthorized burials began there in May 1864. When the Secretary of War endorsed the idea, Meggs began burying every Union body he could obtain, and he had them placed as close to the mansion as possible to ensure that the Lee Custis home would forever be uninhabitable. On one hot August afternoon in 1864, Meg superintended the burial of 2,111 unknown Union dead in a single grave in the middle of the Rose Garden that Mrs. Lee had loved so well. At first, it was no honor to be buried at Arlington. Only those who could not be identified or whose families could not afford the cost of a funeral were put there. With time, a positive transformation began, and it ended in 1955 when the Arlington Mansion was dedicated as a memorial to Albany. Today, more than 200 and, that's all, that's Montgomery names. He was a quartermaster general. Today, more than 230,000 dead lie in the 600-acre tract. An average of 18 funerals are held there each day. Two events round out the story. In 1882, Montgomery Meigs died. By his order, he was buried a stone's throw from the entrance to the mansion. His is the closest grave to, to the house as you run up the mansion. Later that same year, 1882, in a suit brought by the Lee family, the U.S. Supreme Court found the federal government guilty of illegal seizure of the Arlington estate. Our court awarded the family both the property and $150,000 in damages. The Lees took the money. It was too late to do anything else with the property. And so the cemetery remains a monument to bitter feelings engendered by a civil war and a reminder of the ongoing cost of American freedom. In a chapter entitled Warriors, Ports, and Scandals, uh, this is the way I have You run the total gauntlet of personalities here. And let me start with one of the leading scandals. He was a shifty Massachusetts politician, the first volunteer major general in the Union Army. He matriculated from there to becoming the most hated individual in the Southern Confederacy. His name was Benjamin Franklin Butler, but everyone knew him by his nickname, Beast. In 1861, Lincoln appointed Butler a general because of Butler's political power in the Democratic Party. Butler was a man of many parts, but not one of them was that of a soldier. And this he demonstrated consistently 
throughout the war as he led troops from one disaster to another. His disjointed attack at Big Buffalo, Virginia in June 1861 was ludicrous. The climax of the action came when two Union regiments had a sharp exchange of gunfire after mistaking each other for the enemy. Uh, they inflicted casualties on themselves than the Confederate. Next, and without any authority whatsoever, uh, Butler issued a that proclamation that runaway slaves were actually property owned by men in rebellion. Therefore, they were contraband of war and could be collected and used by the Union armies, which they were. And the following spring, Butler was ordered to secure the just seized port of New Orleans, the largest city in the Confederacy. Naturally, superseded him with hostility. Naturally, Butler responded by establishing a dictatorial government. His appearance was much in keeping with his irascible personality. He was bald-headed, with a dumpy, oversized body. Arms and legs seemed hinged rather than connected, and eyes that were noticeably out of it, noticeably out of alignment. And once, when Lincoln's cabinet was chastising Butler severely, the president said, oh, "Gentlemen, you must not criticize General After all, he doesn't see things quite the way we do." While the Lincoln administration saw treat Butler with care, he was a thorn in practically everybody's side. When New Orleans citizens gathered in a protest, Butler drew up a battery of artillery and threatened to blow the hell. A man who tore down the American flag was summarily hanged with any trial. Shopkeepers who denied business to Yankee customers found their stores not only seized, but still sold. Ministers refusing to pray for the President of the United States were banished to the North. New Orleans remained defiant, and this was especially so with the Phil element in New Orleans. They treated all Union soldiers with contempt. On one occasion, when a group of ladies turned their backs as Butler by, the general said in a loud voice, those women evidently know which end of them looks the best. A female spit at two Union soldiers. Then a housekeeper emptied her jar on David Farragut's head as the naval commander walked beneath the balcony. And that was enough for Butler. Three weeks into the Union occupation, that special orders number 28 stated basically that any woman found displaying disloyalty to Union soldiers could be treated, quote, under the night, applying her avocation, which in essence legalized sexual assault if discourtesy was the cause of it. President Davis promptly declared Butler an outlaw, and that has a legal connotation. Uh, any southerner who captured Butler could hang him on the spot. You don't need to accuse him of any lying with anything. When one, uh, when one diarist labeled Butler a cross-eyed dumb beast, uh, the, the name tag became permanent. One of the anti-Butler cartoons, one of many that appeared throughout. Actually, Butler's order contained more fire than bite. Thereafter, no Union soldiers were insulted, and no New Orleans women were assaulted. However, New Orleans prostitutes uh, had the last say-so, shall we say. Uh, what they were called popularly then chamber pots, because, you know, indoor plumbing didn't exist. You, you uh, Prostitutions called prostitutes called them tinkle pots. And what many prostitutes did was paint Butler's face in the bottom of their tinkle pots. So they got the last shots in. Uh, thereafter in that Butler, a woman few. Now, the American conflict of the 1860s is often called the War of Firsts because of the innovations it brought 
to our everyday life. And such is the theme of another chapter in the untold Psalm. Let's begin with a spotting, if not embarrassing, example. The North's first ironclad warship was the USS Monitor. It had no deck. Well, this was going to pose problems for sailors, because in the old days, when a sailor had to answer the primitive call of nature, he would go on deck, wet his finger, determine where the wind was blowing, then go over to the appropriate rail, drop his trousers into his uh, business. They, they find that the USS Monitor doesn't have railings, it doesn't even have a deck. And so the, the naval officials went to see the inventor, John Erickson, and described the problem. And Erickson found a solution in contraption he called a water chest. Uh, you call it a commode, a toilet, a johnny, the fun, whatever. And uh, do some of your best thinking that is in many ways your best friend <laughs> as you make your life. Now I'm not saying that every time you squat you should think about the Civil War, but it is one of the eternal gifts that war brought to make your life more, more comfortable. <laughs> Among the other Civil War firsts, it's the first war in which women I had uh, women workers industry borrowed the trousers of uh, husbands, brothers, scars, etc. And women began to wear slacks. Now slacks are fashionable. Everybody wears them in the 19th century. Barely seen uh, wearing slacks. It's the first time that we have uh, something else we take for granted. Uh, you know, you ladies are Christmas shopping now, and you go down the racks of the department store looking at women's clothes, and you look at those white tags. You want us men to think that you're looking at the price tag first? Give me a life. Looking to see if you can get into it. <laughs> Most of all. Well, had you joined the Army in 1860, you were given the uniform. Now, whether you were 5 feet 2, 6 feet 4, whether you weighed 100 or 100 pounds, didn't make any difference. You were given the uniform. And by the summer of 1861, Quartermaster General Meigs of Arlington State State described the Army in Washington as resembling a national convention of clowns. It was Meigs who sent a directive to uniform made throughout the North saying that henceforth you won't make one uniform, you'll make four. And you will call them small, medium, large, and extra large. And the free size clothing which came from Montgomery Meigs and the Civil War. It's the first war for canned goods, for paper money, for home delivery of mail, for standard time, for pairs of shoes, for prosthetic limbs, veterans hospitals, welfare agencies. It's the first major steps for women in becoming the social evil of men. The fun war came as well. America's happiest day, Christmas. The Yuletide we all began with, as we found out, was Thomas Nash, who was the son of German immigrants. A gifted artist, Nash was only 22 when he joined the staff of the country's popular magazine, Harper's Weekly. He became the father of editorial page cartoons. It was Nash who, with his pen, could blast corrupt politics and politicians, and he did it with a viciousness that some claim led to the adjective nasty, referring to the way Nash drew. Uh, and he would, but those cards in the, initially during the first years of the war were recognizable for their patriotism, clarity, and emotion. And President Lincoln would soon call Nash, quote, my best recruiting sergeant. Only a few months into his job, Nash perceived that for tens of thousands of Union soldiers in the field and far from home, the approaching Christmas season would be a time of loneliness and despair. Nash resolved to make some kind of Christmas gift to the nation that was his new home. 
and near the start of the 1862 Christmas period, two nasty illustrations appeared in Harper's Weekly, and they started Nasty's climb to international prominence. The first scene depicted a fatherless family seated before the fireplace, alone fearful on Christmas Day. The drawing was a combination of Christmasism. In it, Thomas Nash created the first Santa Claus. In this initial drawing, Santa Claus is wearing the stars and stripes. But with artistic ingenuity, you first see this drawing. What attracts you is not the figure of Santa Claus as much as it is the joy on the faces of these Union soldiers that the Spirit has come among them to distribute love and caring and good shop. The national reaction to Thomas Nash was so intense that for two days thereafter at Christmas time, the nation held its breath to see the new Thomas Nash depiction of Santa Claus, which came kept on into the 1880s. And Nash imagined him to be what he really is. Here's a typical Nash, Santa Claus. Round-bellied, white-bearded, fur-clad, jolly, bright-eyed, with a sprig of collar hung in his hat. Quite in contrast with Nicholas, Kris Kringle, and other European depictions of the Christmas spirit, Santa Claus is ours. It's an all-American spirit. It's the embodiment of good cheer. Santa Claus is a patron saint who, one day a year, allows us all to be children again. I humbly suggest that he ought to be our national symbol rather than Hosanna, because he represents all good and love and caring and sharing and always wagging about. Succeeding generations of artists have made very few changes in the Santa Claus at Nasty Rock. Only one who had the name Madden Sunbloom worked for Coca-Cola Company for a number of years and uh, changed the Santa Claus style. But from the hand of, and talent of Thomas Mass came a host of souls that are now part of the American political life. He gave us the Democrat donkey, the Republican elephant, the figure of Uncle Sam, the British personification in John Bull, and of course, uh, he gave us Santa Claus. These all came from Mass. And yet in spite of all those political cartoons, hundreds of them over the years, Mass has adopted America, is still remembered as the man who gave us Santa Claus, and this is a self-portrait he did later in his life. Look at Civil War photographs and paintings. Most of you will miss something in a majority of the Army scenes. It's perhaps the most overlooked element in Civil War history. For 2,000 years, his basic transportation and his major co-worker was the horse. Centuries ago, a philosopher observed that a horse was the noblest conquest Man is of a maid. Horses were an indispensable part of life, especially with the coming of war in 1861. The animals were needed in the armies for a multitude of duties. They were needed at home to produce food and carry materials for armies. Millions of horses went to military service. And this brings us to the misconception that Hollywood has perpetuated for decades. Movies always show mounted warriors staging attack. The defenders open fire, the riders topple to the ground, and the horses gallop away unharmed. In reality, the opposite was the case. Horses are the first targets. You shoot them first. That gets the riders down on your level, where you can then engage equal combat with them. In similar fashion, shoot or bayonet the horse, artillery horses 
and the sides cannon become immobilized and thus unusable. Such acts were violent and unfeeling, but no one has ever said that war was nice. Some mounts became famous because of their riders. Probably the best known horse in all of American history was Robert E. Lee's Gray Stallion Trout. And today, Trout lies just up on the feet outside the chapel where Robert E. Lee himself uh, sleeps. And between Stonewall Jackson and his horse, Little Salt, existed mutual strength and trust and love that existed among them both to their respective deaths. Army horses in the 1860s never had an easy time. Half of them went into battle and were killed. Cavalrymen used and abused horses with an indifference born of the passion to survive. Artillery horses had to drag uh, heavy cannon through all the elements, and once they got to the front lines, their life expectancy under fire could be measured in seconds. For every horse killed in battle, three others died from starvation, exhaustion, exposure, mistreatment, and widespread diseases as glanders and sore tongue. But they were faithful servants to the end. They gave no interviews. They left no memoirs. They filed for no pensions. They simply obeyed and obeyed all the way to death. Some one and a half million horses died in the American Civil War. Not one was ever given a deep burial. One monument remains today to Civil War horses. This one, I think, is not the monument, but it's the most heart-rending photograph among the thousands of photographs I've seen. This is on the Antietam battlefield. It's a cavalry horse that belonged to a Confederate horse who was killed. Federals came out quickly, stripped the equipment off the horse, and left it to die. And there you see the horse dying on the ground. You can look at his rectum beware. Uh, that's loosening up. He's in process of dying. And there he is, all by himself, dying faithfully for a rider who exists for more. The one uh, monument we have to horses today stands on the lawn of the Virginia Historical Society in Richmond. A bronze statue depicts this starved, worn-out animal, head bowed, standing as if, and the next moment, it will topple forward dead to the ground. The likeness is a pitiful but appropriate reminder of one and a half million of God's creatures who were innocent victims of a war that brought peace to a national pasture, those one and a half million horses with the known. Now, Civil War did not end with the ceasefire at Appomattox. After all, over 700,000 vacant chairs stood around American dining room tables. That's why there were empty chairs around the tables. Debris, starting with this beautiful capital of Richmond, had to clear, lessons learned, a new nation built from the smoldering ashes of mind and body. The first assassination of a president dampened victory spirits. Executing four of his murderers seemed to be empty retribution. The hanging four months later of a Confederate prison commandant was little more gross vengeance. With Lincoln's hand no longer at the helm, a vindictive Congress moved to make the South even more for its sins of secession. And that period in our history is known facetiously, if I may say so, as Reconstruction. Amidst such turmoil, here and there, were human dramas that elevated stout-heartedness. One such incident occurred when, in 1866, a periodical, The Soldier's Friend, staged a contest. <coughs> Union veterans who had lost their right arm during the war 
were invited to submit samples of their penmanship using their left hand. The magazine received hundreds of scribbled entries. A $20 first prize went to Jesse Pendergrass. He was a 25-year-old cabinet maker when he enlisted in a Massachusetts regiment. Pendergrass's entry was a 10-page summary of his and was written rather impersonally uh, summary of his regiment's activities in war. Look at that handwriting. There's not a one of us in here that can write well, with the exception of Betty. Betty can write this thing. But, uh, but the rest of y'all see my scribble if you want to get, get into the real bad part of it. And in this 10-page entry, he simply wrote of what happened to him. And then on June 17, 1864, as he says near the end, he was in a fight near Petersburg, and he was standing in an earthwork when Pendergrass wrote, an enemy shell exploded and wounded me badly, so badly, that it was necessary to amputate my right arm, as well as, he added, parts of two fingers and thumb on my left hand. This guy had written on that beautiful penmanship with two fingers, the stump of a thumb, uh, one finger, and the other stumps. I, I, that, that's miraculous that he could do it. I just stand in awe that he did it. To make the nation one and whole, Northern and Southern soldiers fought one of the most destructive wars in history. And they fought it, as we all know, with a fierce passion. There were, we, there were wounds that would be a long time healing, and scars no amount of time could remove. However, as the post-war years passed, a strange, wonderful thing happened. Union and Confederate veterans alike realized that not only had they survived, the most horrible war of the 19th century, came also to understand and to appreciate what the other side had endured in those war years. Johnny Rebs never apologized what they had done, and Billy Yanks never asked them to do so. And soon, a strong comradeship drew them together to battlefield reunions. And there they came to stand and remember where once they had stood and fought. They came together to be gone. And in 1913, on the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, some 50,000 civil veterans attended a 10-day reunion. They relived the past here, a bunch of old fools, running across the emulating charge in Gettysburg. And you see determination and, and, and hatred and whatnot written on their face. They're having a blast coming across that field, waving their hats. And then in relieving the living glass, they refreshed their memories. But most importantly, they stood side by side from, with friends on the And those friends were experiencing the same feelings. And the wartime song most heard at that 1938 union is a song all on the snow. Should old acquaintance be forgotten and never brought to mind, we'll take a cup of kindness yet. Today's of old sign. And when it was time to go, the old soldiers shook hands and made their way collectively toward the same sunset. The Civil War was many things. Fundamentally, it was a very human, extremely emotional, truly unforgettable chapter in the evolution of empathy. The war contained sadness, humor, emotion, inspiration, the many sided aspects of the struggle which was what I have sought to do in the whole Civil War. I genuinely hope that you will enjoy it.
Thank you.
of one of these mascots, but the, I think it's page 82, there's a picture taken in camp of Sally. That just, just blew my mind. But little things like that appeal to me because they're the human things, they're the, they're the things that move our emotions. And I've said this is going to be attitude of mine for years and years and years. Unless you understand the emotions of the Civil War, you can never understand the war itself. Emotions are out of control at that time <clears throat> for two reasons. One, the country was young. We were 70 years old as a nation. Uh, it had you lived in 1860, this would be impossible for many of you to believe. The federal government only touched your life one way. It delivered your mail. Other than that, the federal government was something far distant. Uh, its income came largely from exports and imports. Uh, uh, nine out of ten Americans did not know we had a flag. Uh, there was no national anthem. There was no nationalism at that time. So we were a young country. Secondly, we were even younger from a demographic point of view of 27 and a half million white Americans living in 1860. Half were under the age of 21. Over half. Now, I've taught that group for 50 years. And I can tell you about college students. They, they, they emote radically. They don't like, they love. They don't dislike, they hate. You know, two students get in heat and they see each other and bang that and go, then they get married. Now begins the problem. Once they're married, they've got to like each other. And that's why divorce is 50% in this country today. See, they're doing it ass backwards. Uh, and it should be done the other way. Now, you take like a bunch of, uh, take this college student mentality, and we come to a civil war, emotions are completely out of control. It's going to be a vicious, vicious war, because family feuds engender the most feelings. Uh, I was not fortunate to have a brother or a sister, but many of you do, and did. And you think back through your life with that brother or the sister, and there was a time when you two had a head-on collision. And you probably wouldn't admit it public, but never have you hated anyone as intensely as you did that sibling at that moment. When you apply that to a national scale, you've got a civil war. You've got a civil war going on. A civil war that still lives. You know, the largest Protestant denomination in this country still won't admit that there was a civil war. There's a Northern Baptist Association, the Southern Baptist Convention. Ain't no way those Baptists are coming together. There's no way. Although there's hope. Uh, Baptist minister in Blacksburg told me recently that the new edition of the Southern Baptist Hymnal will have the Bible Hymnal of the Republic in it. So, you know, we just pray that this will be the first step in a, in a reconciliation of that Baptist family. I don't know. <laughs> yes, sir? Uh, you mentioned that the uh, Confederate uh, regiment had a camel as a mascot. Uh, do you know what happened to that? No, it was a Mississippi regiment. And they kept the thing for about a week. And uh, no, I, they, the camel began to attack them all. And so they had to get, get rid of him. But it was a Mississippi regiment. I think it, a circus had left, left, left the camel behind. And this Mississippi regiment took it off the one. And, and there were two bears. And they both had to be discarded for obvious reasons. Uh, the bears got hungry and, and uh, occasionally, and these men uh, and, and, uh, were threatened that they might be the main cause. And so the bears were dropped. But, you take old Abe and little Sally, and uh, oh, there are a dozen others, and, but there were inspirations for these men. Uh, love of animals was uh, so deep in those days, except where the horses were concerned. And they were completed, they were untreated uh, with complete indifference. 
and it's just heartbreaking you know, to see how these animals were misused through that war and, uh, and a million and a half died, most of them unnecessarily, I suspect. Yes, ma'am. I certainly uh, feel that way about the horses, too, but I was wondering, how about the mules? <laughs> uh, I, I class my horses, mules, and jackasses as one. Now, I mean, now, jackass is my wife taught me. It's an animal. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's bread. It really is an animal. A different from a mule than a horse. But the four-legged ones I, I put together. So it equals about a million and a half. Mm -hmm. I have a comment, Dee. Everybody knows of Old Age with the 8th Wisconsin. There was a second Old Age with the 17th Illinois Cavalry, a golden eagle that the soldiers bought while they were at Camp Kane. Mm -hmm. And being inquisitive, they wanted to see how an eagle would hunt. So they bought it a companion, a chicken, a hen. <laughs> and instead of eating the hen and teaching them how eagles fought or, or hunted, uh, the eagle entered into an illicit relationship with the hen. That's a good one. And the hen is right Come on over here. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Is that your book, of Untold Stories? Is that right? No, that's in the manuscript of the Children's The question has to do with uh, Mary Walker, who was a female surgeon awarded the Medal of Honor, uh, who, and she kept her sexuality concealed. And uh, one time the Grand Army of the Republic tried to expel her, and they tried to take the medal away from her. Uh, hers was a singular example of a surgeon. But we know of, uh, we can pinpoint 400 or more women who actually served in the armies, disguised themselves and, and served in the army. And in fact, I tell the story of one of them, Emma Thompson, in, in this book. Uh, and it was not discovered that she was a male until she fell ill, I think, in 1864. And the surgeon discovered what it was. So, uh, uh, Dr. Walker, I know nothing about it except just the basics of the case. Yes, sir? Yeah, I think uh, Mary Walker was a uh, victim of the purge of the Battle of Honor that went out, I think in 1911. Yeah, the 27th Maine lost all of its Battle of Honor. And her comment at that time was, you could dig me up and get it, and she was buried with her Battle of Honor. She's very much Yes, sir. Uh, I have a question that's still at bar. You know the uh, school mascot of the Clare High School in Wisconsin? No. The War Eagles, old age. And uh, a few years ago, uh, uh, Terry Winchell at, at Vicksburg put out a, a display of the uh, uh, development of the uh, 101st Airborne Patch. And uh, it would be interesting to see the development of the, uh, the school mascot on Jim T-shirts. Mm -hmm. But it's the same, it's the same bird. It's yeah. a was there a question in that, or were you just explaining it? <laughs> okay, okay, I, I thought There's a Stonewall Jackson entry in your new book uh, about uh, is there one, and if so, what is it? And even if there is not, tell us something about Stonewall that we can uh, the, the, the story in there occurred during the Romney campaign, uh, which was in January 62, freezing, sleeting, snowing and Jackson was leading his men on a, a real ill-fated campaign at horrible level. And they stopped for lunch, and it was obvious that Jackson was very chilly. They were in an abandoned home. And his surgeon, Dr. Hunter McGuire, suggested that Jackson might take a small sip of brandy. 
and uh, Jackson was always faithfully devoted to his doctor's orders. Uh, he wouldn't drink whiskey because he liked it, and for that reason he wouldn't drink it. But um, Surgeon McGuire explained that it was just brandy, and he might want to take a sip of it. Well, uh, Jackson turned the thing up and drank it all, uh, not knowing the dose. And they got back out in the weather, still snowing and sleeting. They're lining down the road, and Jackson says, Ah, oh, the weather seems to be improving. And he began to unbutton himself, and soon uh, to fast forward, uh, he was almost down to bow skin. He was sweating and producing swaying in the saddle. And the members of his staff tried to help him, but they knew they better not. And so on through the afternoon, uh, he had a good drunk and uh, survived it well. But uh, that's the story of Jackson becoming hopelessly intoxicated. To one down, one, uh, one real moment of weakness uh, for Jackson himself. Uh, Jackson was a fabulous character. The eight years I spent doing the big biography were the eight happiest years of my life as a historian, I think. Uh, I got to know him well. Uh, I made a biographer, a biographer's mistake, a major biographer's mistake, and I, I got intimate with him. And you're not supposed to do that. Uh, the day I had to let him cross over the river was to say one of the saddest days of my life because I lost a real friend. And to understand Jackson, uh, historians had long tried to make him complex. He wasn't. Uh, he was simply a man of faith. A man who honestly came to believe God to be his heavenly father. He was orphan. He never knew his father. And death always surrounded him in his early years. But once he got Calvinism, not Presbyterianism, Calvinism, once he obtained Calvinism, then he had found the faith. And he loved God as his father because he knew that he could love God and that love would always be returned. It would be taken away from him by death. It would be that. And so he became extraordinarily devout. Uh, his years at VMI are what really alerted me to the depth of his faith. He would not raise a glass of water to his lips without thanking God for the gift of water. Uh, class, uh, students would come in for class, he would bow his head and ask God to help him impart to them some knowledge that would be beneficial to them in life. And as they left the class at the end of the hour, he would pray again that God walk with them into the unknowns of the future. I can tell you as a college professor in my Civil War class, upper level Civil War class at Virginia Tech, averaged about 325 students a semester. If I bowed my head, and gave a prayer when they came in, the ACLU would be on me within an hour. <laughs> and that's not saying anything bad about General Jackson's ways, but he had this, this kind of absolute faith. He saw the Civil War as nobody else did. He saw the war as a scourge of God. God had placed a curse on this country. For some reason that Jackson could not explain, it was not his business to explain. So this war must be fought. And though that side which displayed the most faith would win. And so, unlike others who go in to fight for country and flag, Jackson goes in to fight for God. He is not waging war, he's waging a crusade. The other side are not the Yanks, they are the Amalekites, the Philistines. He sees himself as the embodiment of, of Joshua, of David. And he, he fights with this terrible, terrible vengeance in an effort to please his father. Now, when you have a military genius who is absolutely dedicated to God, there's only one way you can defeat him. He has to die. He's not going to give in any other way. He has to die. 
and that's why I think the, the bottle of chance was Bill Lee's greatest success was the one step down the long, long road to Appomattox for the Army of Northern Virginia. Because Jackson gave Lee the one thing that Lee had to have to combat with that huge Army of the Potomac, and that element was mobility. Jackson could make those sweeping flank attacks, those surprise assaults, etc., that kept the Union Army off balance over and over again. Without Jackson, Lee is now forced to stand up and slug it out with this superior army. It'd be like putting me in the ring with Mike Tyson in his prime. The bell would ring for round one, I'm going to run out and try to kick him in the groin. <laughs> if I miss, I'm going to run like hell for 12 rounds. <laughs> but uh, Lee knows that he cannot stand up and swap punches with the Union Army, which was ever increasing in strength. So the loss of Jackson is a little turning point, I think, in this war, because he loses mobility. And for that, uh, you, know, you can make a good case that Chancellorsville might have been the climactic battle of the war. I don't think so, but I think you can make a good case. I think Antietam was the uh, high-water mark of the Confederacy, because it's from there Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation, and it becomes a brand new war now, a war with imminent Limiters to it. Uh, and so, Antietam, I think, uh, is why it really turns. Yes, Judge? Professor, you mentioned about the personal life. I'm thinking about George Thomas. Yes, he and his sisters were suffering, correctly. The question is Did Jackson and his sister, Ella Leckinson, know? Uh, during the war, she was an avid, avid unionist in uh, West Virginia. George Thomas, no. No, he was uh, no reconciled with his family. So these, these really broke up families? Oh, yes. They were, they were the Thomas family. In fact, George Thomas is buried in New York in his wife's family a cemetery. Uh, he was not welcomed back to Southampton camp again for signing with Virginia. As I said, the war would leave many scars that could not be uh, erased. Uh, you can't fight a civil war without having lasting enmity. But the point I'm trying to make is, the other nation has recovered as quickly as we have. And, uh, and before I get the question, I'm sure they're going to be asked about the sesquicentennial, which we now have opposed to the centennial, <clears throat> which was, I can speak with authority on the centennial. Everybody else back then is dead. <laughs> I was a very young man when I first met President Kennedy, and uh, too young to be old, but uh, facing a terrible situation. And the centennial just got off to a very negative start. But to understand why the sesquicentennial will be different, you've got to understand the environment of the centennial. We were out of war with Korea. Now, Vietnam is in the future. Nobody ever thought of that. The American economy was solid. The biggest thing going in the early 1960s was the construction of the interstate highway system, which was keeping thousands employed and economically beneficial travel-wise beneficial, that sort. It was a great time for the nation to stop and look back and remember the great cost that had brought the nation to its soundness in the 1960s. Such can't happen today. This nation is entirely different. We are involved in two highly unpopular wars. The nation is polarized, it's politicized. We live in an age of negativism. Uh, the Congress, I think, should be mandated by law to take a basic American history course to understand one simple premise 
that this nation is held together by one sling, always has been, always will be. It's a nation of democracy. That one sling is a spirit of compromise. The founding fathers had it. You always have to have it in order for the nation to survive. And today, this country is in serious trouble because, the, among other things, uh, 10 of 11 Americans do not trust the Congress. It has a popularity rating of 9%. That's never been that low. And it's, you know, it's just, they're terrible times. And the nation doesn't have the time or the intelligence or the will to want to look back as it is now. And you have to be careful of what you say. I could stand on the street corner and say, Murray had a little lamb. Instantly, some feminists are going with me. Some animal lovers are going to come in on it to wonder what I went. And then there are going to be people who say, what the hell business is it of yours? What Mary does with her lamb? <laughs> Am I not right? It, it, it says something about American society. Well, that is not possible. Uh, there will be no national commission. I don't see the federal government creating a sesquicentennial commission, especially since Virginia created one four years ago, and we're running full speed in Virginia and doing great things. And I mentioned this at lunch at the Union League Club today. Uh, the greatest accomplishment I consider I've ever made to the field of history. In the centennial, we made a great mistake. We overlooked the young. We had a great time remembering us in ourselves, but we forgot the generations to come. And that stuck in my crawl for 50 years. And when I was appointed a charge member of the Virginia Commission, in my charge to the commission, I asked $400,000 to make a film. And I got the 400000 and we produced a three-hour documentary called Virginia in the Civil War. We used every technique there was, HD photography, low-level helicopter, photography, bodily enactments, everything that would appeal to young because this is a film for young. And it is not 180 minutes long. There are nine 20-minute segments. And I see a couple of people smiling, so I know who teaches school. The perfect classroom is talk 20, show 20, wrap up in. That's what this does. In nine segments, we talk about what, what caused war, battles, leaders, the come soldiers, slaves, the home front, uh, the navies, all sorts of things, the aftermath, that settler. And the first 3,000 copies of that film went free of charge in every school in the state of Virginia, from kindergarten through university. Every school in the state has it. And that film is not politically correct, it's accurate. And, uh, and that film will be used in school for years and years and years to come in Virginia. And I'm as proud of it as I can be uh, that we were able to produce it. So this is what we're doing in Virginia. And we're stressing local history. We want communities to do their own type of uh, evaluation. Chicago in the Civil War would be a great project for someone to undertake. I know there are a couple of history of Chicago in the war, but nothing where you've got so many unused primary sources now available. Or the county in the Civil War, or the regiment in this area that went off to war. That's the, local history is the seed from which a nation's annals develop. And so that's what we're doing in Virginia. And, um, we have uh, 100 counties and 34 cities, and of the 134 uh, political entities, 101 now have committees working away uh, to, uh, to commemorate the Civil War. And, to show that we're not, as was the case in Centennial, based in capitals. Back in the Centennial, you had to come to Richmond to find out what the state was doing. 
uh, that our mission rather than meets in Richmond. We meet all over the state. We're taking the war out. We have a mobile and expanded semi. In an exhibit around us, just won all kinds of accolades. We have an annual conference called the Signature Conference, which is held at various universities each year. And we're off in meet. But it will not be the big uh, bonanza that the 1960s was. The nation is just not in the for it. And it won't be that. And demographically, the large minority in our country are now Hispanics, who have no line with the Civil War whatsoever, so it's difficult to get them in on, on it well. So don't expect a whole lot from this uh, sesquicentennial. The only thing I ask you, and the only thing the State Commission is asking, is let's commemorate the war. There is nothing to celebrate about this war. When three quarters of a million men die, you need to remember the reverence. And this is what I hope you do throughout the sesquicentennial. Uh, that war made us what we are. And we are brothers and sisters under the same flag. And God us all for having that privilege. Thank you. Thank you.